first of all, he <laughs> before I, before I continue, <laughs> five people in his family told him something was wrong and he needed it proved with his own eyes. Okay, I'm past that now. Not really. I'll come back to it later. <laughs> me and welcome to No Script, an unscripted wow. conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and Jackson has given away the goat on at least the language of origin of the play that we're discussing today. We're going a long way back in time, back even further than a few weeks ago when we were, you know, what was it, 120 years back in time for the Cherry Orchard. We're going back farther than that today to discuss one of the great comedies of the stage, a play I have had the opportunity to see three times, and I absolutely ached in my abs after each production, even given the hundreds of years that have gone by since the play's uh, inception. And of course, when I say ached in the abs, nobody punched me. It was just from laughing. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, we are talking today about Tartuffe, written by Moliere. Uh, Very excited to get to talk about it. It's a play that, you know, it, it it's a often done play in academic theater because of its historical significance and its meaning in theater culture as well. Moliere being, you know, born like six years after Shakespeare. So he's around that like classic theater coming into cultural society stage. So it's always a historical piece. It's always a Commedia dell'art piece or not always, I guess, but that often has flavors of that. So, so yeah, I'm excited to get to dig into what is, what is a classic. Yeah, it's a classic of academic educational theater, like you said, and the community theater because it's got great comic lines, it's got great big characters, it's got a great big cast. I've seen it twice at schools and once at a community theater, and all productions were wonderful. I'm sure bad productions of it exist, but it's such a great script to work with that I think it lends itself to good productions if you just lean in to the humor from the beginning. I'll say this as a fun tidbit now because I don't think it bears much on our conversation. But if you are a theater student and you've recently heard about French scenes as a means to divide up a script, possibly as a director or for the purpose of rehearsals or even as a playwright, uh, French scenes, of course, being where you create scene breaks when a character enters or exits the stage rather than when the lights go down or when there's a translation of location or time. Um, This is a play with, of course, being French, a great classic French script. It's, It's got a perfect example of French scenes. So find yourself a translation which includes those scene breaks. A lot of English translations leave them out because they can get a little distracting in the text as you try to figure out if this was a real scene break or a French scene. Um, but right. uh, So lots of English translators leave them out. But they are in a lot of the translations. You'll see when uh, Oregon leaves the stage, there's a scene, it'll say, next scene with the new list of characters. Even though the scene just continues. The audience will never notice that there's technically a scene break there. But if you want a great example of French scenes, Moliere's Tartuffe is a good place to come. 
Yeah, yeah. Scene breaks as determined by characters entering rather than time passing. Act breaks, I think, serve the role often of time passing. Um, but but yeah, it is confusing. Occasionally people are like, wait a minute, who's who's in the room now? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so th- there is that kind of historical aspect of it too that kind of enriches the overall reading and the 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 knowledge of where theater has been and what it has grown from. And of course the great historical controversy about the script too, which I'm sure we'll discuss as we get there. But first <laughs> yeah. We do want to ask everybody who hasn't already, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That is where you can become a supporter of the show. We have uh, a number of really wonderful patrons already, and if you are a patron, please know that we only exist because you help us exist. Jackson and I could not afford to do the show if not for the support of our patrons. It's fun to do, we love to do it, but it costs money to do, and that's why we have asked you all to support the show via Patreon. We don't run ads to support the show. We just ask you to support us, and many of you have. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. You make this possible. If you haven't, please consider it. At patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, you can sign up for a monthly tier, and each of those tiers is just a monthly amount that you would offer to support the show. The lowest tiers is just a dollar a month. You really won't even notice a dollar a month go out of your account, I'm pretty sure. So hopefully (laughs) you'll at least consider that. There are higher tiers than that if you can afford it. But even the dollar a month is really helpful. And even at that lowest tier level, you do gain access to all the patron-only posts that we put over there, which include previews of the upcoming scripts much earlier than anybody else gets them, as well as occasionally Jackson or I will write a fun kind of uh, observation about a different piece of art or about a specific production. Um, Given that it's an online theater world right now, we've been able to post some links to great online productions, so that's kind of a fun place to see some compilations of those. So we really, really hope you'll consider becoming a patron of No Script Podcast at patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Thank you, thank you very much. And we will not be saying now back to the script right now because we have one more exciting announcement. We do, absolutely. Those of you who have listened to the show for a while know that we like to do a themed month every season. And it's coming up to that time of the season where we are telling you about it. Uh, this, the, uh, this themed month is going to take place next month. And uh, so you can kind of get ready for it. We want to let you know what we'll be uh, focusing on. And today, uh, dealing with Tartuffe and Moliere, uh, it seemed to be an appropriate day to mention that we are going to be focusing on Masters this month. So we'll go into the themed month of Masters month. Right. So, of course, we're just, we just tried to find a way to include the M in we're, the month we're title. <laughs> we're, we're reaching a little bit this time because yep. really what we're doing throughout the month of April, the four episodes that will be released in April, is we're talking about four Greek plays, uh, the original Masters. And so that's where we got Masters Month. It's a stretch, I know. It's a, we're There's a lot of Masters out there, and we're only looking at the ancient Greek ones. But so it goes. <laughs> we're doing Master Month, four ancient Greek plays plays, some comedy, some tragedy, uh, one really weird one. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, we'll be putting out the, uh, the those plays in, in the coming weeks, so keep, keep an eye out for them so you can uh, get them ahead of time and read them ahead of time, but know that it's coming. Themed Month is returning this season, and we are looking forward to it. So, and now, Back to the script. Here we go. So, uh, Moliere, uh, 17th century 
playwright, uh, as I mentioned before. And, you know, he's he's kind of in that same time that Shakespeare was around writing plays. He's a little after, so some people uh, often view him as the French Shakespeare, um, uh, and and to the point that like people's language is shaped around his plays. There are, there are phrases in here that makes, it, especially even in Tartuffe, like the 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 tail wagging the dog is a phrase that comes from this play or is in this play. I don't know exactly the etymology. It's in it. And it's a common part of speech now. Um, he wrote this play and performed it for the first time in 1664. Now, this is was at a time when uh, theater in general was uh, reviled by a lot of people. Uh, the, the, he, he's writing plays in the time when theater is moving from like the markets and uh, reclaimed tennis courts into theater houses. So there's this big conflict at the time with the church, and the church is kind of coming up against uh, theater, noticing that people are going there to be taught somewhat moral lessons, but from a secular perspective, and uh, there's 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 territory being fought over there, and Tartuffe centers on a uh, a charlatan who masquerades as a priest. So almost immediately, there's some censure against the play. The the uh, bishop of France says that anyone who engages with it, sees it, reads it, and didn't know what they wouldn't be reading it. Who goes and sees the play is excommunicated and it's shut down. The play goes through, I think, five rewrites if I have my number correctly. Yeah. So there's that fascinating moment where Moliere then has to respond to the censure by the king. Uh, on the king obviously puts out the proclamation saying you can't do. Tartuffe anymore, but everybody believes he's really being influenced by the bishops to the point where even like in the edicts, the king writes, even though it's very funny, (laughs) (laughs) it's like he liked it, but he's being heavily pressured by this religious organization. So Moliere has to respond by rewriting. He has to go argue the case of the script, try to get it staged again. Yep, there's there's like anonymous articles that are published that many people think Moliere might have written, and what eventually ends up happening is he writes it, rewrites it to the effect or to the extent that there's enough in it to kind of notice that uh, Tartuffe is the hypocrite and not like just the church is hypocritical, and uh, have a, a, the, and also the no, a pretty noticeable uh, Rex ex machina uh, that we will uh, address. Yeah, as really. <laughs> <laughs> That probably got the king on his side a little bit. So the play is finally produced after five rewrites. And of course, it continues into our lexicon by virtue of it being a very uh, comedic play, combining both the uh, aspects of kind of low comedy that uh, and, and Commedia dell'arte that's very physical humor um, from, from the kind of traveling theater model with comedy of manners and comedy of nobility and uh, comedy of the, the, the ruling class and, and calling out people for the ridiculousness of their station. Yeah, so the play is about a wealthy family. Orgon is the patron of this family, and at the beginning of the play, we are informed by a little bit of a contrived setup to, to get the exposition out that Orgon and his mother, Madame Purnell, are being heavily influenced by a gentleman named Tartuffe. Of course, the title character of the play. The subtitle of the play is often translated as, as either the imposter or the hypocrite. So we already know something about Tartuffe. We're inclined to believe certain things about him. And basically, everybody in this household, including the 
servants, including people who don't even live in the household but are uh, uh, siblings to people in the household, like Orgon's wife, Elmir. Her brother is a, is a major character in the play. Everybody realizes that this gentleman named Tartuffe is an absolute fraud. He pretends to be a high, holy guy, but ultimately all he's really trying to do is swindle money from Orgon um, and potentially ultimately swindle his daughter out from under him because of the kind of the plot of the the thing that keeps this this fraud driving forward is that Orgon who's been so blinded by his love and his admiration for this holy man Tartuffe decides he wants his daughter uh, Marianne to marry Tartuffe. Uh, Marianne does not want to do that. She in fact is in love and uh, before the action of the play was promised to a guy named Valère, who's also a character in the play, but Orgon has changed his mind and wants to marry off Tartuffe now, or marry off Marianne to Tartuffe. Now, complicating that is that Tartuffe is in love, in lust, whatever, with Orgon's wife, Elmir. And there are two scenes where uh, Elmir and Tartuffe discuss the fact that he very much wants to sleep with her. And if you believe the best about Tartuffe, even marry her and have a great relationship with her. I don't know if you really are <laughs> supposed to believe that about Tartuffe, but that's what he claims. Um, and in both those scenes, there is someone hiding, hearing this information. So the secret gets out. After the first time, it is Orgon's son, that uh, Dami, that hears this secret information, and he brings it to his father, who, you know, kind of conveniently walks in right then and says, he, oh, Tartuffe is trying to seduce your wife, don't you see? And Tartuffe, in a masterwork of comedy and character, uh, says, you're right, I'm such a bad person, you should throw me out. And, you know, claims kind of puts on that pretense of humility and shame that convinces Orgon even more what a wonderful person Tartuffe actually is. He would never do this. Um, and, uh, tar- and so Orgon becomes even more convinced that he's going to have to, that he's going to marry off Marianne to Tartuffe. Then the whole family decides to sort of work together to overcome this. So Elmir hides her husband, Orgon, in the closet and seduces Tartuffe for his listening ears. He, of course, realizes his mistake. Tartuffe is a terrible person. Get out of my house, Tartuffe. But... Orgon, being the dunce that he is, has uh, claimed Tartuffe to be his heir. So Tartuffe uh, now has some legal right to all of the property and told Tartuffe about some secret illegal letters that he is currently holding. Tartuffe has taken those letters and his right, his legal right as heir to the king and said, uh, kick this dude out of my house now and probably put him in prison because he is uh, a traitor to you. So the king shows up, uh, or the king's um, representative, a guard, a police officer, whatever, shows up ostensibly to evict everybody and arrest Orgon for holding the traitorous letters. Um, of course, at this point, now everybody has realized what a villain Tartuffe is, including in the deus ex machina of the play, the king, who apparently has seen Tartuffe's face on a couple of other notices for like, yeah. scammers and frauds. Wanted in posters. The yeah. <laughs> so the king only sent his guard just to see how far Tartuffe would take it. Uh, he was never going to let that happen anyway. Tartuffe is arrested and thrown in prison. The illegal letters are returned to Orgon unopened. Marianne, at the very end of the play, is allowed to marry Valère, and it all ends happy for everybody except the villainous Tartuffe. 
That's the basic synopsis of the play with the inclusion of the very convenient rescue by the king at the end of the play. Yes, yes, yeah. Probably reason why why Louis the maybe 14th liked it so much in the end was his his starring role in the in the redemption of the end of the play. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh the the whole thing is is a li- like it's early farce, right? It's people hiding behind curtains, people entering conveniently or inconveniently in situations and of course the the family drama right this is a this is the this play works in the structure of the kind of pater familias the that that the the father has the the sole say over the whole family and he has he, i mean he has the say to marry his daughter off to someone she doesn't love who is a terrible match for her but who he sees is a good match he also has the power to uh, not only relieve his son of his inheritance, but give away his property currently. So, because uh, that, that's the pivotal part is he, he like signs away his rights to the property even now to Tartuffe, believing that he, he is a pious sort and it won't kick him out of the house. So, so yeah. Right. And so the, the play balances that all powerful male head of household figure. And that's kind of the power structure that the play owns. And then, Moliere says, now what if that all-powerful male head of household who has the right to decide the marriages and the money and the life for everybody in the household, what if that guy were an idiot? Right. I mean, (laughs) he is gullible. (laughs) Yeah, completely uh, gone in on this guy to the point that he's, I mean, he's giving away secrets to him and uh, willing to sacrifice his, his, all of his family relations. There's this great scene, first of all, with the the one character who we need to mention who is not directly mentioned when you're talking just about the family is Doreen. Doreen is the maid who just, like, the glue that holds this play together. She's the comic (laughs) centerpiece of the play. Yeah. Uh, you really could call the play Doreen the Funny Maid, and it would be suitable. I mean, she is yeah. the comic centerpiece of the thing. Mm-hmm. And there's this scene where uh, Oregon comes home. He's been away for a little while at the start of the play. He comes home. He's getting the news of the house, and she just oh, like is trying to get him to care about the fact that his wife was sick. And and he just over and over will he goes like hmm but what about Tartuffe and she'll say he's been gorging himself on food essentially the whole time he's like oh oh poor man so you see right away in the first scene that there's this like almost disconnect in Oregon around Tartuffe and whatever he's getting from Tartuffe is blinding him to the reality which is both a comedic thing and a dangerous thing for the family. Yeah, there, there's this line that some version of it in different arrangements appears a couple of different times throughout the play. And the line is like, I love Tartuffe. This is Oregon speaking. I love Tartuffe more than son, wife, daughter, all. It's a little bit differently said every time, but that idea appears a couple of different times throughout the play. and, And it serves to emphasize that Tartuffe, this stranger this uh, clearly a fraud now of course we the audience get to see everything and Oregon doesn't see everything right away but obvious fraud has supplanted everybody else in Oregon's life in his importance and trust and because Oregon is that powerful male head of household that the society was built and structured around that spells disaster for everybody else 
Right, right. I mean, it, it asks the really interesting questions, right, around when, when, a, when a structure of power is organized around this, this uh, kind of sole decision maker, what happens, right, when, when, when something is lost, something, something is, is lost on that person, and, uh, and how, how the kind of ripple effects affect the community, community. but also, I think, I think one of my, uh, one of the kind of sweet justice moments in the play is after he's made the realization, he goes to his mom, and tries to convince him of it too, and you, he gets the same treatment. So you get it on yeah. multiple levels. Like he, even once he's made the revelation, like I've seen it with my own eyes. First of all, he <laughs> before I, before I continue, <laughs> five people in his family told him something was wrong, and he needed it proved with his own eyes. Okay, I'm past that now. Not really. I'll come back to it later. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he goes to his mother, and uh, and she doesn't believe him on the testimony of his own eyes. So it's a real it's a real like taste your own medicine sort of moment. <laughs> well, and. and- you have to deal with it as a production team if you're ever going to produce the play. And even as a reader trying to get with the script, what in the world makes Orgon so blindly follow Tartuffe? Orgon tells the story of their initial meeting, and Tartuffe is apparently in church all the time, and he's in church all the time uh, praying these fervent, loud, self-flagellating kinds of prayers, rushing to dip his finger in holy water for everybody who comes through the door. And then when Orgon, when Tartuffe's servant comes to Orgon and talks about Tartuffe's incredible humble poverty. Oregon tries to give him money and apparently he doesn't want the money and then when he's forced to take it he like gives some of it to the poor. So he's putting on an enormous display and you might even be tempted to say, well, you, I can understand why the display that Tartuffe makes would be sympathetic and why you might want to bring that kind of a person into your home and care for them. But then when family member after family member comes to you and says, this dude is a fraud, right. when you're not around, he's gorging himself. He's laughing at how stupid you are. He's trying to seduce your wife. This dude is not who he says he is. Person after person comes to Oregon and says that, and Oregon, time after time, says, Tartuffe is much too good of a person than that. You are the villainous person for accusing such a holy man. Well, right, because there's the, 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 one of the underlying things could be like fear of church. Right, you could you could have this this kind of dramatic fear that the church is, or fear of heaven, which Tartuffe brings up quite often as this like you know let's 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 caretake this priest. You know we don't want to do anything bad to the priest, but I don't think that's quite it. Right, it, it certainly could be played that way, but there is this like affection that Orgon has for Tartuffe that that I think he attests to it at one point. And I'm not going to be able to find the line, but it is, it's something about um, how he makes him feel like a kid again, essentially, or like returns him to a nostalgic state about his life. So I think that's in there too. There's certainly eventually a fear of the church that is deployed by Tartuffe to uh, make, uh, make the family do his will. But Orgon is this interesting, like, love for the guy and uh, that 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 uh, ends up clouding his judgment around it and in a sort of a natural distrust for other members of his family i mean it it you can call him gullible and that's true but but a playing of organ that he's just some sort of bumbling fool misses something because he's not blinded by other members of his family, right? It's this some something specific about Tartuffe. And actually, 
I think that ultimately might be why the church so strongly reacted negatively to the play in its initial encounters, because it is... The character of Tartuffe is obviously a religious fraud, and I don't think the character of Tartuffe is particularly a critique of a religious person or of the church. But what is more subtly going on is this idea of how easy it is to trick people using religious language and imagery yeah. and justifications. I mean, Oregon is blinded, and you said it, by some of it is by the just the weight of the whole holiness and the righteousness that Tartuffe puts on. And that is a more subtle, uh, uh, very specific critique of how people in the church might be able to use their holy religious put-ons to influence other people unduly. Yeah, to the point where later in the play, uh, Orgon kind of goes on a tirade against the church for a line. He's 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 figured out that uh, that Tartuffe is is coming onto his wife. He's caught him in the act. He's run off. He he's, he knows that he probably has the information to condemn him to the king. And he like he's talking to his brother-in-law, and he's like, I you know this is this is what the church does. It deceives people. And 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 in what you know, especially with the context in mind, you must hear as Moliere like. Saying, talking to the church, saying, "No, no, no! I'll throw something in for you." Cleant, his brother-in-law, says, "Now, now, don't go overboard, right? <laughs> like, t- t- yes, villains are involved in the church, <laughs> um, but but the church itself is not to blame for this scenario." So you you kind of hear the 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 voice of Moliere trying to get his play on back on stage in 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 the brother-in-law kind of defending uh, against uh, Orgon's rage against the church. Yeah, and actually a number of different times, Cleant, the brother-in-law, really acts as the sort of defender of the church in the midst of this play. Um, and you wonder in, in all the rewrites where all those lines came from. Were <laughs> right. they in it originally or were they added in later to, to get the play staged? But a number of different times, Cleant will say things like, well, look, it, it, Tartuffe is not bad because he's religious. He's bad because he's a zealot. Humble, quiet, uh, faithful belief is a great thing, but not his kind of attacking, aggressive, holier-than-thou attitude. And then, as the moment you mentioned later on, after Orgon's had it all revealed to him, he says... How could such a pious, kind expression conceal the thought to rob our each possession? I brought him off the street a filthy knave. Enough, I now regret I ever gave a penny to a beggar or to priests. Henceforth, I'll persecute them all like beasts. And of course, this is just a specific translation, but Cleant goes on to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's no need to attack the, the truly holy, humble people that have honest justice in their causes. This is about a specific guy, a con artist, a, a, a false zealot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you you have the the kind of voice of wisdom in in, in Cleant doing that, but also you have the kind of interestingness of it's interesting that. Throughout, you mentioned throughout the play, he is this this uh, voice of reason for him, and yet he's not actually Organ's brother. He's his brother-in-law. 
Um, and I think I think that is is part of maybe some of the underpinnings of what uh, at least if it, if I were digging into Oregon and we've been spending a lot of time on Oregon. There's other characters in the play we'll get to, um, but if I were digging into him, I would look at the cast of characters. Right, he's got his stepson there, his or, or I'm sorry, his son there and his daughter there, but he's married uh, to his second wife, Elmire, and and she's a, a much younger uh, than him. So he has this this kind of whole house uh, that is much younger than him <laughs> around him. He, you have the brother-in-law who is uh, probably much younger than him as well. So you have all these people around him and then you bring in Tartuffe and, and casting of Tartuffe is important, but you bring in this ally who is just his ally, right? And so, so you, you kind of get the organization of his whole family is talking against him, but also they're all just a little bit not in his camp. So it, it makes sense that it's late in the play before Cleant can have a word over him that is empower or that is powerful enough to sway him one way or the other. And you would probably want to imagine that some of Orgon's uh, gullibility is based on Tartuffe knowing which buttons to push. For example, one of the buttons that Tartuffe pushes off stage in his two scenes with Elmire, he doesn't really do this, but because he's trying to woo her. But we have learned through other discussions that Tartuffe has expressed some very serious concerns about how many parties and guests Elmire's going to. And, you know, you might say, well, the reason why Orgon trusts Tartuffe reacts so strongly to that is he insecure about that. Is he already insecure about the number of guests. Uh, Valère, who is supposed to marry uh, Orgon's daughter Marianne, uh, apparently is a gambler. Well, is Orgon already insecure about that and Tartuffe pushes that button or does Tartuffe invent things whole cloth? That's an interesting question. Yeah, Damis is uh, known from uh, both uh, Madame Purnell, who is Orgon's mother, and Orgon later on brings it up that he's this kind of party boy who's always around town, and and uh, uh, yeah, so so there's 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 a lot of things that I'll bet like Tartuffe just kind of plugs into, and and goes from there. Um, so spe- as as we let's let's turn our lens to the uh, the one of the controversial pieces of this play, right? And it has to do with the physical comedy of the play. And uh, it's it's basis in Commedia dell'arte, but also basis in a really patriarchal society. Um, you have Tartuffe, who is this older priestly type, um, a bit of a glutton, so you can do whatever you want with that information. Um, yeah, he, he, his physical description is given to us by other characters, but it's all in a very negative, mocking <laughs> tone, very right? They have a very clear lens, so it, it's, I don't think it's necessary that you, like, go to the physical descriptions that these other characters provide of Tartu's skin color and guts and, <laughs> right, uh, and right. hairline and all this stuff, and really, really hardcore grab onto them. You know, they they don't like him, so they're bound to view him <laughs> in a specific way. Yep, yep. So, so yeah, take with that what you will. I've seen uh, multiple different castings of Tartuffe, and they they play that up to various degrees. Um, but he is a person who uh, is uh, doesn't know what the word no means. 
Um, so his relationship with Elmire is very uh, affrontive, very uh, nearly abusive, and and probably fully abusive in one scene that is meant to be kind of farcically com- comedic as she's seducing him into this uh, expression of his affections with Orgon under the table. Um, it goes too long. It goes further than Elmira is comfortable with. She's trying to get her husband to come out from under the table and stop, and it doesn't happen. You also have him uh, attracted to and expressing love for Marianne, a, a young daughter of Orgon, vastly younger than him in age. Um, so these are the. This is the kind of the the messiness of this play, right? And the and and frankly, like when when played fully for just it's on the page quality, and even maybe not even the kind of gross aspect of the play. Yeah, the the first encounter between Tartuffe and Elmire that we see on stage is a supposedly secret encounter. Um, uh, Demi is hiding in the closet. Uh, the audience knows this, of course, dramatic irony, um, but the, neither of the two characters in the scene do, and Tartuffe is expressing how much he cares for Elmire, and but he is throughout the scene groping different parts of her body. It's not even, it's written in the text as she right. reacts to his hand on her leg, on her neck, all this stuff. And it, it's uncomfortable if it is intended in the kind of farcical physical humor, which it almost certainly was at the time that Moliere wrote it. Nowadays, I would hope that not many productions would want to play that part of their encounter, this um, harassment um, by any definition of our word for that nowadays. You know, I, I hope that there's not a playing up of that comic elements anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a scary, you know, uncomfortable part of the show. Well, I don't know. I'm, I, let's let's. I, I want to lean into that just a tad because I don't know that those scenes can function without that part of Mol, or, or not Moliere's of Tartuffe's drive in that scene. Right? Perhaps there's a way that you can play it so that it feels like Elmire is is uh, in control and reeling him in essentially. Um, but I don't know that those scenes play much different than uh, than than him being somewhat very abusive, you, as you mentioned well, in right. the lines. I, I, there's no, I don't think you, I mean, I don't think you cut the the moments or anything like that. But I do think that the director, the actors, the production team can decide that you're not going to make a joke of those scenes anymore. Yeah, right? that we can evolve our understanding of that encounter from what it used to what it would have been. Right, this rabble of crowd screaming and yelling as Tartuffe grabs different parts of her body. And nowadays we can say, well, this is a moment of sexual harassment, right? This dude is taking advantage of being alone in a room with the woman that he lusts after, and he's just grabbing her despite her objection. So you can say, you can reframe the audience's relationship with those moments, and, and that's already, it's frankly, it's already been reframed, right? We don't read those moments and laugh through them anymore, hopefully not. Right, right? Absolutely. I've, I've watched a couple, like I've watched a couple of shows and I've seen some recordings of this play in preparation for this. And, and it's much quieter than a Commedia dell'arte, you know, French uh, 16th century or 17th century theater would have been. Um, it is, it is dead quiet in those scenes. And that's, I think, I think you're right that it has been rewritten for us. Um, I think that, that, that there's ways to play those scenes so that the safety of the actors is apparent. Um, but, but it is a, a thing to grapple with when you approach this script, right? There's the whole table scene. It's a famous scene, right? It's a it's a scene of theater history where Orgon Google Tartuffe and click images. Almost certainly, one of the images you will see is Elmire and Tartuffe sitting on the table, and under the table 
Cole is Orgon, yeah. uh, hiding, listening to the encounter. And yeah, this is the second encounter later in the play where she is trying to seduce him for the purposes of showing his is uh, you know his terribleness to Orgon. Uh, the first scene, they truly believe they're alone, and she is rejecting his advances. It, and it's the underpinnings of of farcical comedy, right? Someone in the room hears a thing they're not supposed to hear, or sets up a thing for someone to hear that they're not supposed to hear. So it's it's a famous scene. It's a part of how we tell theater stories, and yet it has changed in our cultural vernacular to mean something uh, very appropriate for it to mean, which is that this is not okay. Um, and and part, that's just part of the storytelling that I think you're right. A, a, a crew needs to be in mind of is that we're not necessarily we are not playing this for a laugh. People might laugh, but uh, it's 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 uh, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a hard moment in the show to to well, try and, to. And it 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 makes Tartuffe into that much more of a villain, right? I, I don't think that including these moments where Tartuffe uh, lusts after her and grabs her and pinches her and all this stuff. In the original writing of it, I'm not sure those moments were intended to show just how bad Tartuffe is, right? They were just moments of trying to convey to the audience how much Tartuffe wants to sleep with her. Nowadays, we see those scenes in a different context, and rightfully so, but it makes Tartuffe into much more of a bad guy, which is... That is, of course, the whole reality of the play. And in both of those scenes, Tartuffe is saying virtually over and over, well, all that Christian stuff about how, you know, we, we shouldn't sleep together, we shouldn't be lusting after each other, we shouldn't be touching each other, all that Christian stuff I'm just leaving behind. And it, it all gets wrapped up together into those scenes now. Yeah, the, the the you you are I think made to marvel at Tartuffe's ability to be a narcissistic jerk in this play, and and some of that marveling is is uh, just just straight up like wow you turned that around. Um, I think of the scene where uh, Damis or Dami, if I, I don't speak French, sorry y'all. Um, the uh, <laughs> Dami brings the <laughs> the. Uh, the accusation against him to Oregon, and as you said in your in your synopsis, he just masterfully turns that around. Um, and 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 watching that scene, I think you are supposed to like marvel at the manipulation of this character. You're supposed to laugh at the manipulation of Oregon. Um, so so that is that is tied into Tartuffe as well. Just this like wow, he really he really pulled that off, huh? <laughs> well, right, and and I think it's important that we see that change occur for the character of Tartuffe. Of course, one of the notable parts of this play is that Tartuffe doesn't appear for a large chunk of the play. We do not meet him. We only hear about him. Right. And then when we finally meet him, we meet him in context of his trying to woo, and of course we we understand now, harass Almir, and he is uh, he he says some things that seem like he may have genuine feelings for her. And given that all we've heard is a bunch of negative stuff about him, but it's a little bit exaggerated how negative it is, we're not really sure, you know, to what extent people are being subjective and unfair and all that. So we meet Tartuffe and he is definitely behaving how we he should not be behaving definitely putting her in a really uncomfortable position we see that negative side we see him discount all of his religious stuff and then as soon as Orgon walks in the room in the way that all con, con artists do in all the great con artist movies he puts on a new face right and the change is astounding uh, the character of Tartuffe is a very capable actor 
In that way, the the I'm gonna keep calling it the Rex Ex Machina because I, I yeah, like that yeah. phrase. In in that way, the Rex Ex Machina is is almost like uh, a deep breath at the end. You know, it's in in the lines are something along the lines of the the king is a reflective person and can tell <laughs> when someone is a hypocrite. And when someone is genuine and, and boy, this guy, like he knew right away. And it's like, uh-huh. finally at the end of the play, you're like, oh, thank goodness. Someone, <laughs> someone else is in the know. Cause we've been in the know basically the whole play. Um, or, or at least certainly since the, the last half of the play, when Tartuffe shows up, we maybe have some wondering about the guy, but if you read the dramatist persona, right in his title is a hypocrite or, or something along those lines. So, so yeah, it, it is a moment of relief to finally be like oh good good he got caught cool <laughs> right well and it but it does make a moment of un, some unsatisfaction at the end of the play because there is no great triumph of the family and especially Orgon who has been so duped but the whole family there there is no great triumph over Tartuffe at the end of the play, the moment of great triumph is belongs to Elmire as she is able to successfully show Tartuffe's villainy to her husband. But that occurs, you know, only about two thirds of the way through the play. The last third is them trying to unwind themselves from the financial legal troubles that uh, casting out Tartuffe has put on their family. So it, it does it, it does what ex machina you always warn people about, right? It, it robs the characters of their moment to make a decision and have a victory and something from above swoops in and saves them right that is the that is the big critique of like uh ancient greek theater for instance where it's where the term like or, originally kind of came out of was this deus ex machina the gods show up and everything's okay now um and and, and interesting that now in you know 16 or yeah 1600s france gods have become kings um so uh so the the in sweeping of that robs the characters i think you put that really well of overthrowing him somehow or or the opportunity for someone to truly outsmart him i believe you're right though in pointing out that that Elmire does outsmart him. And I think that is a, it is, it is a little early in the play for, uh, at least in the terms of a kind of classic play structure for the victory climax of the play to happen. And yet that is the moment where things start to derail for Tartuffe. Well, because and it's, it's early, not only because of it, where it occurs, like, you know, percentage wise through the play, but also because Tartuffe still has another card to play. They actually haven't gotten themselves out from under Tartuffe. She's successfully convinced Orgon that he's a villain, which is a big moment in the play, but Tartuffe hasn't lost yet. He still has this legal card to play, and you, as an audience member, as a person engaging with the story, you sort of hope to see them succeed completely over Tartuffe, but of course the king and his, his representative swoop in and save them instead. There's that interesting aspect of, like, eventually this this uh, con artist will get found out. Like, the con artist who who just can't stop. And, and, and really, when you zoom out for a second and think about what it is he's trying to pull off, he's trying to de-seed a whole noble family and take their land, take their palace, 
and do it by the by the power of the king. So 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 that that is I feel like a little bit of the uh, the tragic blindness of Tartuffe, if I may give him a, a tragic character um, for for a moment. Is that is that moment on when he says, "Okay, you know what? I think I can make the king believe me," um, and and goes off with this evidence and ends up just walking into a trap that he is not nowhere near qualified to try to get out of. Well, and you're right to point out that that the the, the lines about the king's uh, wisdom in determining hypocrisy from true faith are really important because all of these religiously powerful folks that were telling the king this is a bad play, they yeah. were all in the place of potentially being the subject of the criticism, <laughs> right? That Orgon might be a representative of the king, and Tartuffe might be all these religiously powerful people that are whispering in the king's ear yeah. and causing disaster. And if you're religiously powerful folks, the bishops and whatever that are around the king, you might say, he's talking about us. <laughs> yeah, we're on. Tartuffe. But yeah. no, Moliere writes at the end, no, 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 the king is a smart guy. It's not you. You right. have genuine faith. The king can tell. He's a genius <laughs> about this kind of stuff. And also, you wouldn't criticize the king, would you? Yeah, he <laughs> knows, doesn't he? Doesn't <laughs> he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is like when you when you open up the kind of political realities around this time, it is just fascinating to watch them play out in the play. Because the play itself is a really, like, it stands on its own without it, of course. Like, it is it is just this, like, comedic uh, farcical Commedia dell'arte. We've said a lot. These these high characters or archetypes. Um, but but it, it is fun to play around with. Also, what's in the mind of Moliere as he writes it? Absolutely. So let's let's adjust a little bit here. We've talked about some of the more serious aspects of the play, but what about? what makes this such a great comedy. We've already mentioned one of the amazing comic scenes when Oregon returns home and he's talking to Doreen the maid and Doreen says, your wife was sick all week and Oregon says, but what about Tartuffe? Your wife had a headache all week, but what about Tartuffe? Your wife could barely sleep with fever, but what about Tartuffe? That's one of the great yep. comic scenes. What else? Well, there's that great scene between Marianne and Valère. That, the, that... To me, the great scene of the play. <laughs> yeah, yep. Um, and and it's and it's a scene where Marianne has learned that Oregon is going to marry her off to uh, Tartuffe, and she's kind of dealing with uh, her powerlessness in that scenario. How much she doesn't want to do that. How much she loves Valère. Valère has heard kind of through the grapevine uh, something's amiss, and he comes comes over, and and it just is this like knot that that they like miss each other. <laughs> In, in expressing their true feelings because Valère ends up like advising her to follow her father's advice by accident and and she well, responds. I don't think it's by accident. <laughs> I think it's by sheer stubbornness. I mean, <laughs> the true. scene is the stubbornness of both of these two young lovers to refuse to admit how sad they really are about what's going on and how much they truly care about each other. Now, I, when I was in undergrad, I don't know what was going on if Tartuffe was experiencing a renaissance or this is just the reality. But when I was like at the college theater festivals and there were acting competitions, probably like one in every 10 pairs were doing <laughs> this scene. I mean, it, it's a very popular comic scene. And if you read it, if you've never seen the play, you might recognize this scene because Valère has heard that she's going to get married to somebody else and comes in upset about it, but is unwilling to admit that he's hurt and that he truly loves her. So he's saying, well, you should just marry Tartuffe. And you said you wanted to marry Tartuffe, so you should do it. And she said, 
saying, well, you told me I should go marry Tartuffe, so you, clearly you want me to marry Tartuffe, yeah. don't you? And it's a, it's a lovely clash of stubbornness and great, great humor if it's played with any degree of subtlety and aplomb. And it's it's an archetype, right? Like this is this is the stu- this, this is the archetypes that undergird our sitcoms, right? The 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 stubbornness between two lovers that neither one will really say their true feelings, and thus they hurt each other and are apart for a while. That scene also holds another one of the slow exit, right? The okay, well I'm leaving. Okay, goodbye. I never want to see you anyway. Good. I'm glad you didn't want to see me. And starts walking away. Did you say something? Comes One, back more into the- thing, yeah. <laughs> One more thing. <laughs> they do that a couple of times in this play. Yeah. Uh, the the opening scene I think is a lovely scene too. It's a it's like seven or eight characters all abuzz as this group of the family, Orgon excluded. He's not around yet, and neither is Tartuffe. But all the rest of the family members try to convince the grandmother character yeah. um, that that Tartuffe is a villain and that he's overswept Orgon, and she's got all this criticism for every specific member of the family. This scene is a great example of of uh, kind of a feature of these classic plays because the audience was this kind of living body, you know, right? They were standing, they were, there were prostitutes and orange sellers and, and all this stuff going on all around the theater. Opening scenes in classic plays really have to capture attention and convince you that you shouldn't just walk out the door. Nowadays, right? We sit down in our seats, the lights go down. We're all ready for the play to start. Right. We're not leaving till <laughs> intermission at least. Right, most likely, most likely, right? But but so if you look back at classic scripts, you'll see this a lot, right? Like Macbeth, you get the opening scene of all these witches. Um, uh, Hamlet, you get the opening scene of the ghost. All you can look back and you can see in these opening scenes, it's really attention grabbing. And that is true of Tartuffe. Like this whole sweep of people come on and they're gabbling, gabbling. And is this woman going to leave? All these direct criticisms she's got all the while setting up the exposition. But she does the same thing, all that to say, as Valère, where she almost exits and comes back in with one more criticism. Yeah. And almost <laughs> yeah, yeah. exits and comes back in with one more criticism. Mm-hmm. Well, and and and, and that's the, that scene is feels like the start of, or you can hear echoes of that in the comedy of manners too. Like it's almost a scene out of importance of being earnest, right? The aunt that no one can really deal with, but who has a lot of power in the family, who sweeps in, says a bunch of mean things to everyone and then leaves. Like this is, it's just interesting to see the echoes that that continue uh, as a result of work like this, um, work popular work like this. And of course, we have Doreen, who we called the comic centerpiece of the play. The and she's kind of a trope character too, right? The quippy, really clever, um, kind of sassy maid character. Right, right. Yeah, she. She. I mean, she's in that scene with. Uh, Marianne and Valère, and as they're like, they they continue to leave, leave each other, and and not want to leave each other. She like pulls them back in by the ear into the room and makes them be <laughs> still love each other and try to plan against Tartuffe. She's in uh, Organ's face all the time. A great scene, which which is tied up in some like slapstick comedy of him like threatening to make her be quiet by slapping her, and she'll like distance herself just enough so that he misses, and she plans ahead for that. Says oh yeah, things. there's a great moment where she keeps quipping. 
talking about Tartuffe. And finally he says, one more word and all whatever the terrible threat is. And so then she starts just like talking under her breath. Yeah. And he goes, didn't I tell you to be, I was just talking to myself. What? Right. <laughs> I, was just, I, was, I was talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like asides to the audience that are, are read for the other characters is like her removing her lips behind their back. So just a great, great character. Um, and, and one that like, as we mentioned about the glue that holds this play together, like she over and over comes into the scenes and makes things possible or, or like whenever there's, whenever there's a, a moment, like, like the scene where she kind of stops Valère and Marianne from leaving each other in that moment, she sets the course of the play for the family to unite around Tartuffe or unite against Tartuffe. Um, so, so yeah, she's, she is, uh, just a great, great kind of through line in the play. So there's so much of these sort of funny, so many, I guess, of these funny, really great comic moments and great comic characters at contrast, like all these ones we just talked about. And then there's just the way that the play is written. And it's it's hard, of course, because we're reading an English translation of a French script. Jackson and I read an English translation by Tim Mooney that has the iambic pentameter, that has the rhyming couplets. But in the original French, I'm sure it's much more uh, clean, uh, much more clever. But and Tim Mooney's translation is great. But it is it's you know they're just translations. But he really captures the fact that the play is written in rhyming couplets. Right. There's like a cumulative music that happens when you're uh, an iambic pentameter is about as close as English can come to what a number of uh, to what romance languages can do with this music of of language and and the way that it builds at least my experience in reading it in English the way that these lines feed off of each other in that iambic pentameter really comes to kind of comedic uh, glorious level when the 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 pentameter is interrupted between lines so you you hear the rhythm still but it's 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 transferring between characters and 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 that sort of just kind of slow uh, buildup of that music of language throughout the play really uh, can be used to comedic effect. You 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 wind up laughing at things simply because they sound funny. Um, in, but you in that and way. you also end up laughing because the rhyming couplets especially highlight the heightened language of the piece. And so you live in this world of something that, you know, to us nowadays, we only really hear in poetry, rhyming lines like this. And so you have this play in poetry to your ear. And at the same time, people are doing wild things on stage, slamming doors, hiding in closets, saying vulgar things, swearing. I mean, it, it, you, it ends up being sort of a contrast of really heightened language with really kind of um, obvious physical, verbal comedy. And, and I mean, obvious in the best way, just bust out loud kind of comedy. Right. It kind of speaks to the the audience that is being written for in this play, right? You have you you have language that can entertain and delight the aristocracy, the philosophers in the crowd, and yet you have it set to the or or, or, or rather, it is the setting or the soundtrack to what is just like a ribald physical comedy. Um, that where where people get into uh, kind of embarrassing situations and and all to the underpinnings of this really musical uh, dialogue that that undergirds it. 
Yeah, like the, to, to me has this line just to give you a sense of the rhyming couplets if you've never read it. And again, this is just Tim Mooney's translation of it. But to me says, do you really mean to stand there and suggest that sneering hypocrite is of the best? Have you been taken so completely in that every joy is not but waste and sin? So you could hit the rhymes really hard. I would imagine the best actors and directors uh, try to just use the rhymes to inform the shape of the speech and not uh, nail them like you would maybe in an in a old-fashioned poetry recitation. But they lend this just rhythm to what you're hearing, and then you have this rhythm at juxtaposition with this jarring, uh, slamming door kind of comedy. Right, yeah, sm smashing dishes, slapping people, chasing people around the stage sort of comedy. <laughs> I, I think that's just about all the time we have for uh, this show. It's, I mean, this is a show that you will continue to see. It's a show that is a part of the theater's lexicon. It's a historical piece. It's also a piece that uh, lends itself well to the study of character. Um, both both the uh, Commedia del Art form of that word character and the study of human character as well in the hypocrite Tartuffe. Uh, so, so we'd love to keep getting to talk about this play with you. If you have been in this play, seen this play, read this play, uh, uh, done a history of theory of theater class about this play, we would love to keep talking with you about it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about uh, about, whew, about Tartuffe with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you uh, liked this episode or any of our other episodes or if you're excited about theme month or whatever for whatever reason please pass along your friends and family send them to us uh, we know that you like people that like theater that like scripts they're gonna like this podcast so send them our way they can find us at podbean where we're hosted or at google play apple podcasts or spotify it's really easy to get connected to us on facebook and then you'll just be able to click on a link every monday when the episode releases and you'll also see the advertisements and stuff like that theme month is coming in april so be excited for that because we very much are but we got some great conversations coming between now and then so, until next week, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you for listening to No Script, the podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.